kind of where we are in our study. We preach uh, expositorily here. That is to say, uh, our goal is to expose a text of Scripture, to give ourselves understanding of it, application of it, and we usually do that verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, so that we're understanding things in their proper context. And so that, by its very nature, uh, causes us to look very closely at small sections of Scripture as we march our way through the book. Hopefully, that gives us an understanding of the overall big picture. But as we want to keep things in context, it's good for us sometimes to step back and to look at the big picture. So you'll notice that when we do an exposition of a book, almost always we have an introductory message, then we do the exposition of the book, and then at the end uh, we do a kind of a theology of the book. Like what are the big lessons that we take from the book? That way we're keeping the book in context. Well, the book of Acts, we are making our way through right now, uh, is a big book. I mean, there's a lot of material here. And furthermore, because it is narrative, uh, there are a lot of lessons and kind of sub-lessons that we can learn from it, themes that work our way through the book. So we are in a period from now, um, well, this will be the last of what was intended to be one or two messages and has now turned into, I think, four or five, I don't know, uh, of really kind of a teaching time, just a very practical nuts and bolts, uh, thinking about the church, the local church, Uh, What are some things that we learn from the book of Acts? And so we've taken several weeks to just just take a step back and look at the forest rather than looking at the trees. And so if you've been with us, you know that we have learned several lessons from the book of Acts, and that's where we pick up and actually uh, conclude uh, this morning, uh, this first half of the book of Acts. And then it won't be till January Uh, that we pick up uh, moving into um, the the, the second half of the book of Acts, kind of the missionary portion of Acts. We've got some some things surrounding the holidays, some guest speakers, and uh, various things going on, so it'll be January when we resume our study in the book of Acts. So what are the big lessons that we've learned, that we've taken away for the local church? Now, we said that the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, there are some, some seeds laid in the book of Acts, and so that is a theological theme, but it's also a practical theme. We reminded ourselves that we cannot do the ministry that we are called to as a church without the aid of the Holy Spirit. That is what makes it all possible, and we're reminded of that throughout the book of Acts as we see the Holy Spirit continuing to work, and we're seeing that the work that is done is not is not man-centered, it is really the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is propelling the church forward into the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. So that was an important lesson that we, that we learn for our church uh, from the book of Acts. We also kind of got into some very practical things, and the, the term that we use is polity. Uh, so someone noted that it's the same root word as politics, all right, except without the ticks. All right, it's, it's, the, it's the way that something is governed. It's the, the, the way, and specifically we're talking about the church, the way the church is ordered uh, under the headship of Christ. And so as we looked at the book of Acts, we see a lot of things um, that, that point to other things that are unfolded in the epistles, right? The Acts gives us the model, and then that's expanded in the epistles. So there was a lot of practical things that we've been considering 
uh, over these last few weeks. And the first is this idea of healthy leadership. What is healthy leadership? And we noted that it is important to understand that there are basically there are two offices in the New Testament church, one being that of deacon, the second office being that of what we commonly refer to as pastor, but could biblically be referred to by two other titles as well. And those titles would be, do you remember? Pastor and... Yes, bishop or overseer, good. And what's... An elder, good. So all three of those terms are used in reference to the same office in, in the New Testament. And we uh, went through the passages and showed you some of those parallels where those terms are used interchangeably. And so someone asked me just this week at a lunch appointment, do you have elders? And my answer to that was, my answer to that was, yes, we do. We have two of them, right? Pastor Dan and myself, right? So, um... We, we talked a little bit about that, and we talked about the importance of leadership leading. First Timothy refers to the elders who rule well. Uh, Hebrews 13 uh, refers to the same thing. And we reminded ourselves that there is an obligation on the part of pastors, elders, overseers to actually oversee, to actually provide leadership. But we also looked at those passages closely to understand that that leadership is not a dictatorship. That it is, it is not that the, the power is consolidated only with the pastors, but that there is an actually another component that is taught to us in the New Testament, and this is the idea of congregationalism. And I actually spent p- perhaps more time than you would have expected me to, and the reason is because I think this is important for us to understand. Some people in churches that practice congregationalism, it's just kind of the, the, what they do. And they don't really think about what the the biblical framework behind it. And then we consequently had a really good discussion on Wednesday night about what obligations it puts upon us if we are a congregationally governed church. And so for us to be congregational, uh, the case from the New Testament, what that looks like. So we talked about uh, what it is appropriate congregationalism, what it is, what it is not. And then we, we got into um, the matter, the, kind of some of the particular matters that the church that I believe uh, has obligations to, to meet, has, as we referred to last week, kind of jurisdiction on. So that was, uh, that was last week. We now come to this question of local church commitment. And I would say it this way, the New Testament encourages well-ordered local church commitment. So what do we mean by that? Well, one of our discipleship groups, interestingly enough, this morning was actually talking about this very question. The, the pattern that we see laid out in the New Testament is that someone is saved by grace through faith. That is to say, they repent of sin and turn to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Right? This, is the, this is the core message of Jesus that was being spread in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and most parts of the earth in the book of Acts, right? They are preaching Jesus who can save from sin. I mean, it all starts with the gospel. And it's important for us to remember that as well, that that everything starts and really ends with the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ can change us from enemies of God to children of God through the new birth. I mean, this is the message of Jesus. We are born in a state of sin. Romans tells us all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's righteous expectation, what he has told us. And none of us escapes, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But beyond that, we, we are separated from God because of our sin. We're separated from God not just in this life, broken fellowship, but we are separated, we are due to be, we are, 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 have deserved to be separated from Him for all eternity in a terrible place called hell. Because we are unrighteous. We are sinners. Ah, but the good news is what? Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. The perfect Son of God lived the life that you and I could not live. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And then he offered himself, he laid himself down as a sacrifice so that the wrath that you and I deserve could be poured out on him. And he died. He was buried. But he rose again the third day. And when he rose again, he signified that he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Faith or trust is depending on Jesus Christ alone. Not your works, not your religion, not how you're better than your neighbor, not the money that you can give, but on Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone, because our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. Nothing that we can do will ever merit standing before God, but depending on Jesus Christ alone and His righteousness, the flip side of that same coin is, is what the Bible refers to as repentance. That is turning from my way. My sin of self-dependence, my, my doing things my way, that's, that's what the word sin is. It's, it's going my way. And when one turns, when one repents of sin and depends on Jesus Christ alone, he is made new in Christ. He is given the righteousness of Christ. Those dirty robes, if you will, those dirty clothes that are defiled by sin are taken from him. And he's given new robes, what the scripture refers to as robes of righteousness, where we now stand before God, righteous because of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is people who are transformed by the gospel. They are made new because of the message of Jesus Christ. They're, they're coming to him in faith and repentance. They're depending on him for salvation, and they are being born again. And what follows being born again in the New Testament? Baptism. That's exactly right. So these people then testify to what has taken place within through a public ceremony called baptism. And we see this again and again. People are saved and they're baptized. Very soon, in fact, on the heels of being saved. They're made new in Christ, they profess faith in Him, and then they are baptized. And the, the, the pattern continues that they, they become part of a local assembly of believers. In fact, it almost seems like the pattern makes it, makes it look like it, it, churches are inevitable. A believer testifies through baptism and, and is publicly joined. Now, understand in the culture of that day, when you were baptized, there were a number of different groups that had kind of ceremonial baptism-type ceremonies. They, it was clear to all that you are now identifying 
with a person or a group. Baptism identifies us both with Christ, but biblically it also identifies us with a group of believers. And so as they were baptized, they were added then to the church, and not just the church in the big C sense of the church, kind of the universal body of Christ, but they were actually connected then with a local assembly. So all of that, to just kind of distill it down very simply, the, the pattern is saved, baptized, added to the church. Saved, baptized, added to the church. Sometimes we see two of those elements listed out, and the other one is kind of implicit. Sometimes it's explicitly stated. But whether it's in explicitly stated or inferred from the text, it seems that, that joining a local church, or in some cases, the birth of the local church, right? When the people in that area were getting saved for the first time and baptized, that was the nucleus of the church. That was the church that, that came about, was the pattern in the book of Acts, and we see that continuing throughout the New Testament. So, the fact that people were connected to local assemblies, it kind of implies a couple things. First of all, believers ought to belong to a local assembly. They ought to be connected in a meaningful way. But before we get to that, I want to touch on one other implication that those were added to the church um, were believers, and it's just kind of the inverse, kind of the obvious of that, that those who are added to the church must first be believers. Are you tracking with me? Does this make sense, right? If believers are added to the church, then we kind of have to think about that the other, on the other side of that as well. Those added to the church were believers, and so you're not added to the church because of where you're born or what family you're born into or just by inertia. For the congregation to be biblical, membership must first be believers. You don't become a member of a local church by some sort of a, a religious initiation that took place a, as a child, right? So throughout history, we saw um, a, a common practice that's the parish church model, right? We, we know words that relate to that, right? Parish, parishioner, right? You ever hear people to refer to a congregants as parishioners? Well, where does that come from? There's one state in the union that does not have counties. Where, where is it? Louisiana. What, what do they have? Parishes. Okay, that comes from, um, from the European tradition where communities were, were broken up into regions, right? And those regions were referred to parishes. What was a parish? Well, if you are, live in this area, you are part of this church. You belong to this church. This is the, the parish church model. How do you know what church you're part of? Well, where do you live? There is also another movement throughout church history called the free church movement. Right? The free church movement doesn't mean that churches get to do whatever they want. <laughs> the free church movement mean, is the idea that, that you are not connected to a local assembly by virtue of where you live, that you are free to associate with a different church. It's not governed by where you live, like in the parish model, but the free church movement says, no, no, we associate with one another intentionally. We become part of a local church intentionally. 
We associate together by a decision of our, of our own will in our conscience before God. This is the free church movement. Now, because it was so enmeshed in early America, most Americans just kind of think this automatically. But this has not always been the case throughout history. But understand that the biblical model is the, the latter of these two. Not that you know, you're born into a certain family, so therefore you're part of a church. You're baptized as, a, as an infant into a, a church, and therefore you're part of that church. Uh, you, you live in a certain place, so you're part of that church. No, 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 no. Those that were saved then identified publicly and were added to a local assembly by their own volition. So, this is the idea that, that, that um, biblical membership uh, assumes that someone is already first saved, right? So, we, so when someone, is, so, uh, someone in the church has a baby, we're excited because we feel like someone new has been added to the family. But strictly speaking, they're not a member until they have done what? Until they have professed faith in Christ, publicly testified to that through baptism and are made part of the local assembly. So that's kind of the first implication. Uh, people must first be saved. They must profess faith in Jesus Christ to be a biblical member of a local church. But the second implication of, of this connectedness that we see in the New Testament is the flip side, and that is the necessity of belonging. That if someone is uh, puts faith in Christ, then that they will inevitably be connected to a local assembly. So missions efforts, for example, in, in the book of Acts, they always resulted in local churches. Sometimes we see it stated very clearly in the text. Other times we know it happened because there was then later a, an epistle, right, to the church in Corinth. There were these uh, churches that sprouted up everywhere that, that Paul and his companions went. It was, it's an inevitable result because it is the biblical outgrowth of people being saved. And sometimes we just know from history that churches sprouted up in the wake of the evangelism. As the gospel went forward in the world, we know churches were formed. The New Testament does not present a believer who is disconnected from an assembly of believers, not for any length of time. I mean, there's no such thing in Scripture as a lone ranger Christian. This idea of it's, you know, me and Jesus, you've heard me say this before, me and Jesus and my Bible and we're good, like that is not a New Testament concept. It's a very American concept, right, because we're rugged individualists, we do it our way. But that is foreign to the New Testament. The New Testament expresses this meaningful connection. People are, are identified with an assembly of believers. Now, a couple things that I'm just going to kind of mention in, in a fleeting, uh, not going to take a lot of time on, but I just want to mention. Uh, there are things that happen in the New Testament that for them to occur, there must be meaningful membership. Now, if you don't like the term membership, okay, whatever. Paul happens to use that one in reference to the body, and I think it's probably why we borrow that from that illustration. But, but whatever, whatever you want to call it, 
meaningful membership is, is necessary for discipline of the church. We talked about that uh, when we talked about congregationalism, that the, the church as a whole has a role, and we talked about this whole idea of, of voting, the majority, right? We looked at those passages uh, last week. Um, this implies that we know who is and who is not part of the church. In fact, this whole idea of putting someone out of the church after they have been resistant to admonishment, after they refuse to repent of their sin, putting someone out implies that there is such a thing as out and there's such a thing as in. It was necessary in 1 Timothy for distinguishing uh, who receives care. There was evidently some type of care uh, program in the, in the church there in Ephesus, and uh, it's linked to those who are part of the church. Um, it's necessary for pastoral responsibility. Um, I've referred before to an article that actually is in our new members uh, information packet of a pastor who was a pastor of one of these, you know, these big, uh, big churches, uh, kind of a mega church, and there are a lot of people come and get as many people as you can. And he was kind of a philosophy that, no, we don't do membership because membership implies exclusivity. I mean, we don't want that. We want to be welcoming to everyone. We don't practice membership. Well, the problem was he was an expository preacher. And understanding the biblical text will do a lot of ruin to your good ideas. <laughs> and so here he is preaching through the book of Hebrews. And I think I mentioned this before when we talked about pastoral responsibility, right? And it says what? They, they watch for your souls. Well, that's a big responsibility, I mean, that lay, should lay heavy on a pastor. And so then the question came to him, for whose souls do I watch? If we have no definition of who is part of the church, for whose souls do I watch? And so I would actually make the point that it's necessary for pastoral responsibility to be accomplished. It's necessary for the preservation of doctrine. Do you understand that, that, that you as a congregation, you as a member of North Hills, have a responsibility to preserve the, the fidelity, the orthodoxy of this church? Is it my responsibility? Sure it is. But is it all of our responsibility? Absolutely. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul seems to really hold the congregation responsible for the accumulation of false teaching. And then it's necessary, really, to accomplish many of the commands in the New Testament, right? As believers, we're called to be part of a community, right? So when we are saved, we are saved not to just serve Jesus on our own, but to serve him in community. And it's interesting how many times in the New Testament we see command followed by one another, we see, do this for one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, sing to one another. All of these things are given as commands for us and then followed by what's two words in English, one word in Greek, uh, used many times in the New Testament. And so all of Paul's letters are written to a local church, a group of local churches, or the pastoral leadership of a local church. There are a number of good books on this topic if you want to delve into it in more detail. I'm not going to take a lot of time to, to go through all this, but I do want to make the point 
that it is important for us to be part of a local assembly so that we can actually be obedient to the New Testament. Sing to one another. Let's just take that one for an example. You are to sing to one another. It's a command. So who's one another? Well, everybody in the body of Christ. Really? Have you sung, have you sung to every person around the world who's a member of the body of Christ? Well, of course not, Pastor. Then you're not obeying that command. Well, maybe one another doesn't mean everybody in the body of Christ. Now, sing to, encourage, pray for one another. Absolutely. Take that and apply it in other places. Encourage other uh, you know, neighbors and friends and people in the community that are members of other good churches. I'm not saying don't do that, but what I'm simply saying is we have an obligation to one another. And the one another is those who are part of our local assembly. And so it's good for us to think seriously about this matter of meaningful membership. We are, in fact, so serious about that that we would encourage you to join a church even if it's not this one. I actually had an email this week. We sent out an invitation to everybody in the church database for our upcoming um, drop-in that we do each year uh, at Christmas time and uh, got a reply from someone who said, I'm going to such and such a church. Uh, in the area. I don't know that he used the word membership, but that was where he said that they were going. And I immediately responded, that's wonderful to hear. This happened to be a good gospel preaching church in the area. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. You can go visit that. Right? Um, but, uh, but I responded, that's wonderful to hear. Um, and I highlighted a couple things that I really appreciated about that ministry. The one of them was their commitment to preach expositorily. And uh, and said, I would, I would encourage you to join that church if you haven't already, and I'm glad to hear that you found a church home. Right? This is important for us to be part of a community that we're committed to, that we're committed to keeping these New Testament commands for one another uh, in, in, in accomplishing what God has called us to. Now, just kind of as a sidebar, think about this for a moment. Congregationalism, well-defined membership, and the concept of regenerated church membership, that is, you must be saved before you become a member, are actually all linked together in such a way that they can't be separated from one another. Right? Congregationalism, well-defined membership, and regenerated church membership. They all go together. If you, take, if you take one out, then the others collapse. Think about it. If you don't require a testimony of faith, which is then demonstrated by baptism, if you don't require that for membership, then you potentially have unbelievers constituting the church, operating the church, the mission of which is to teach the gospel, to preach the gospel to every creature. So those are incompatible. If you suppose that only regenerate people should make up the church, yet you deny the need for, for membership, then there's no way to ensure that the church is, in fact, made up of saved people. Furthermore, you can't have congregationalism because then who makes the decision? If it's just the leadership, then it's no longer congregationalism. 
And then lastly, if you assume that regenerated people are, are not to be lone rangers, that is, they are to be committed, yea, even actively involved in the mission of the local church, doesn't that, doesn't that imply some level of connectedness to the decision-making process? I would, I would argue that it does. So those are some observations um, from, the, from the biblical text, some things that we uh, apply and uh, again, it's a lot of it's under the banner of what's called the free church stream of thought, that, that understanding that develops into congregationalism. If believers are free to cho- choose to associate together as a church, then those believers then govern the congregation. There's one last thing that I want us to touch on, and it's related uh, in some measure. In fact, it almost could have been a sub-point. But I want us to also think about the fact that the New Testament encourages well-ordered local church. Excuse me. The, uh, Acts illustrates autonomy and interdependence. Now, both are important. The apostles give careful instructions to the church as to how they are to govern themselves, but they actually never laid down any kind of protocol for a centralized authority over all churches. Do you ever have people ask you, people in the community, ask you about your church and, you know, what denomination are you a part of? Or if they're from uh, certain traditions that may even seem to be them a foreign concept that, uh, you know, the, the Episcopal hierarchy doesn't send you your next pastor, Right? So when a, when a pulpit's vacated, there's a lot of traditions they're used to. Okay, we, we write to headquarters and we say we need a pastor now, and they send us, they assign us who the pastor is. Well, what we note in the New Testament is there is instructions given by the apostle, but that the churches are actually governing themselves. They are autonomous, right? Auto, self, namas, law, rule. They are self-governing. Now, some would argue for a hierarchy based on the the apostles' model of giving instructions. But let's be clear. The apostles do continue to give instructions today. How do they do that? Through the written word of God. But those who are apostles, those who learned from Jesus directly, which is what an apostle is by definition... They're gone. All right. We do not believe in any kind of ongoing apostolic succession. There is not any ecclesiastical hierarchy. Are you with me? And so this is the idea that the church should be self-governed, autonomous if you prefer. But independent, self-governing, does not mean self-dependent. There is a biblical cooperation that local churches can and should observe. In fact, there are many times that the churches are actually grouped together. They're still in the plural. They're still churches, but they're grouped together. Let me just give you some quick examples. The churches of Asia, which is a Roman province of Asia Minor are mentioned in 1 Corinthians and Revelation. There is an entire book written to churches within a region 
Anybody know what it is? Into one of the epistles, one of Paul's epistles that's written to Galatians, right? Galatia is not a city. It's a region. There were multiple churches in the region of Galatia. That's a region in Asia Minor as well. The churches of Macedonia, the northern district, uh, the district north of Greece. Second Corinthians, they're mentioned. Churches in the regions of Achaia are mentioned in 2 Corinthians and Romans. This is the territory of Greece proper. Churches in Syria and Cilicia are mentioned in Acts 15. Churches in Galatia and Samaria in Acts 9 and Galatians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2. Right? These churches are cooperating together. They're associated. You could even say they're, they're kind, of, kind of confederated together for a cause. They're clearly having communication with one another, encouragement of one another, yet they are still functioning autonomously, independently, yet they are still interdependent. They're interwoven. So what did they do? Well, we know a couple things. We know in 2 Corinthians that Paul expresses gratitude for the gift of the churches in the Macedonian region. And so here's Paul sent out from the church in Antioch, who, who clearly sped him on his way and supported him. Yet there are other churches as well that are supporting Paul's missionary endeavors. Right? This, is, this is a biblical model of cooperation in getting the gospel to the ends of the world. So when you hear things like you know, churches uh, supporting, multiple churches supporting a missionary, in fact, if you understand how North Hills got planted, that's how we got planted. There was one main sending church, and then there were multiple churches, and there happened to be some individuals involved as well, that for years supported North Hills. In fact, there's still a few even uh, that are supporting us to this day, right? It was a cooperative effort. It was churches confederating together, working together in cooperation in order to, to accomplish the sending of the gospel to a place. Uh, we see in First and Second Corinthians especially that Paul appeals to uh, churches using other churches as an example. And so that's another way in which churches served each other. They were examples to one another. Hey, this is working well in this area. They're doing well in this area. This church is strong in this area in this area, and that is an encouragement to one another. We see in Romans 15 and Acts uh, that there was a sharing in time of need. The church in Jerusalem was experiencing a famine, and other churches together sent gifts to help that church. So what we see here is an intentional collaboration amongst churches. Now, you've noticed that we make a specific effort to remind ourselves of this every week. And how do we do that? We highlight a church that is preaching the gospel in another place. We're not in this by ourselves. This is not just us. That there are others that are preaching the gospel in other places. So it's important for us to, to get to know those churches, to, to hear about what God is doing in those places, to pray for them regularly. Uh, churches continue to cooperate together in the area of missions. This is an important uh, means by which churches cooperate together. Another, another illustration, think about it. When, um, you, how many of you have seen an ordination uh, process take place? Ordination council, ordination, a few of you, right? Typically what happens is there is a, 
a young man who um, has his sights set on ministry, believes God is directing him to ministry. The church will take whatever steps they do before the ordination council, but then they will call together representatives from other churches who will then examine that candidate. They will, they will ask him questions. They will interview him. They will delve into his personal life. They will de develop, delve into his, his doctrine, his understanding of Scripture, and, and many, many other things. And then those representatives from those churches will make a recommendation to his own local church who will then ordain him for gospel ministry. This is another example of churches cooperating together. Even training, to a certain extent, is a cooperative effort. Um, so I think of uh, one of our young men who's considering ministry, Miles, who is this morning worshiping in another local church. It's not local, local church, but a distant local church, right, in Phoenix, Arizona, under the umbrella of that church is a Bible college and seminary where he is training for ministry. This is a way in which we cooperate with one another, we, we help one another, we serve one another. And then there are sometimes uh, what are called parachurch organizations where churches will cooperate together for, for publishing, for sending missionaries, for um, training and other kinds of things like this. So all of that to simply make the point. When you hear autonomous, when you hear independent, I don't want you to confuse that with, well, we just do it, we're just, it's just us, we're on our own. No, we are interdependent with other followers of Jesus Christ, other assemblies of churches. These are important things for us to understand because recognize that the, the gospel changes us, it associates us with other believers in a local assembly, but then it associates us also with a larger body of Christ. So some important lessons as we think about what the local church is and how we are to function. I'm going to um, have a closing word of prayer, and then I'm going to give you again an opportunity for some questions. We did this a few weeks ago. We're kind of in the weeds of practicalities, right? So perhaps there are things that are still on your mind about local church and function and that kind of thing, and we want to see if there's any final questions that we can sew up. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll see what questions you have. Lord, we do thank you for our study. Uh, we trust that it has been helpful and practical as we have gone through some of the things that we see in the book of Acts and how we can implement them even in our local assembly. We offer these lessons to you for our continued reminder in Christ's precious name. Amen. Are there any 